0: It's a Thursday on Today in Ohio, March 23rd, 23. That means it's a palindrome day, 32323. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi for our news podcast discussion from the newsroom of Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And we got a hot one to start off with. What cynical move is the Republican supermajority in the Ohio State House making to deny the majority of state residents the ability to determine the rules for abortion? Laura?
3: When I saw this come over, I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I just, every time you think, okay, things are going pretty smoothly. You just get this Republican wrench from the statehouse thrown into it. So remember how the state banned August elections? Turns out that was just the standing election. You can still hold special elections. I did not realize this. And the Republicans want to have one right before the re- abortion rights activists ask Ohioans to league Legalize abortion in November. So, they want to put this on the ballot in August to make it harder to pass a constitutional amendment. And this idea is being fast tracked. Hearings begin Wednesday for this House Joint Resolution 1, which would require 60% of the vote to pass a constitutional amendment. That's up from the current simple majority of 50% plus one vote. All sorts of opponents pack the state House hearing room. And this was just one day after Senate President Matt Huffman said he wanted to see the proposal on ballots in August rather than November. So he said he wanted it. And all of a sudden, everybody's talking about it. About 100 groups from voters rights organizations to labor unions are fighting back. But, wow, this happened quickly.
0: I, I actually think this is going to blow up in their faces if they do it. Um, I think Ohioans have a sense of fair play and this violates that and from the beginning. They said it wasn't about abortion. Right. right. They said this is They're still we just that. need to change it. So, but but to do a special election mm. after you banned August elections to try and deprive it, I think this is going to spark lots of women to come out to vote in August because they're going to be so angry that that this group is trying to deprive them of the right. You've got every group, conservative and liberal, coming out of the woodwork to say, no, 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 this is anti-democracy. You're giving up the power of the voter. Don't do it. Don't do it. And And here's the thing. If they do this, and I'm right, and it causes this tidal wave of people saying, screw this, That momentum will carry into November when the abortion amendment's on the ballot. That'll win overwhelmingly. And the risk is it carries into 2024. Because if this is painted as the anti-Democrat, this isn't going to be anti-Republican. This is going to be anti-legislature. Yeah. That, That the elected leaders are trying to stick it to the voters. They don't want the voters to have any power. They want to be the lord and masters. And it will be characterized this way. I think that could be very damaging to this supermajority in the new year.
3: Well, they're hoping that it doesn't even get on the August ballot. Those opponents, they're hoping to talk to some sense into lawmakers and get skeptical Republicans to vote against it. To be clear, this isn't just about the supermajority of Ohioans that are going to be needed to pass an amendment. It's going to make it harder to even get a referendum on the ballot. This would eliminate the so-called cure period. That's when campaigns are that are trying to get on the ballot are short by a number of signatures. They're given one more week to get more signatures. That would be gone. If you failed, you'd have to start over. Would also require citizens to get signatures from every single one of Ohio's 88 counties. Right now, campaigns needs to get them from 44 counties, so half of the state. Now they're saying you'd have to get a signature from every single county. And what they're the proponents are saying is you can't ignore any part of Ohio. Don't just go to half of Ohio to pass something. But the op- opponents are saying that means one tiny little County with a couple thousand people could essentially veto the majority of the entire state. If no one signed it from there.
0: Yeah, this is as sinister as it mm. gets. This is just sleazy beyond belief. And I do think because so many groups are aligned against it, this, this, Flies in the face of the voters in the state having the power. This puts all the power into the elected leaders who have gerrymandered the system to get control of it. They've changed the Supreme Court elections to get the power there. They're trying to squelch any ability of the voters to do stuff. This is what authoritarians do. This is what fascists do. This is what dictators do. They're trying to do that. It's going to be painted that way. And I think it's going to stick to them.
3: Well, I hope that that voters are paying attention a the special election would remember how they were all against special elections 20 million dollar cost to do it in august um the sponsor of the bill he actually said it's beyond my pay grade and i've not been told what the plan is like let's just talk about it. he's a sponsor of this bill apparently he thinks it's a great idea but i mean does that not sound like a puppet statement
0: well think about it you, you could do a campaign saying Your elected leaders are spending 20 million dollars to hold a special election, hoping you will not show up so that they can take the power of your vote away. And that's what this is. And the abortion folks are going to say this is all an underhanded move to deprive the majority of Ohioans who want to enshrine that right in the Constitution, the ability to do so every leader who ties himself to this is it I think it's gonna stick this is a move to authoritarian rule in Ohio
3: and it's it's such a small it's not even the majority of Republicans right like you just heard that sponsor like this is being manipulated by a couple of people at the top and look what we just went through the householder trial like come on guys let's start thinking for ourselves and re- representing the people of Ohio.
0: Well, that's the other thing. They're going to need dark money to do it. And anytime they use dark money in a campaign like this, people will bring up Larry Householder. They will say they're trying to get this passed through a corrupt system, which was just proven in the biggest corruption scheme right. in and history.
3: Wasn't one of the original arguments for you know making it harder to pass referendums was we don't want outside interest ma- manipulating right. our state? Right. Well, hello.
0: Right. It. it the, look, this is... As cynical and sleazy as it gets. And that is what happens when you have a supermajority like this. They feel like they're in control. I think the voters are not going to go for it. We'll have to see. They'd be smart not to go this route. It's just, I think this blows up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Did Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb figure out a solution for the crisis facing the Say Yes to Education program in the Cleveland schools after the Cuyahoga County Council refused to do its duty and provided the needed money to support it. Layla, what is the solution?
2: Well, yes, it does appear that Justin Bibb played a key role in finding a solution to this problem, at least in the short term, uh, thanks to Bibb's advocacy and, and I believe the advocacy of the county's Department of Children and Family Services. The county is eligible for a $1.5 million grant from the state to bridge that funding gap for the Say Yes Family Support Specialist Program. Say Yes still needs $800,000 to make it to the end of their fiscal year and avoid laying off those specialists. County Executive Chris Renane has pledged $600,000 that that we're expecting to see introduced to county council very soon. And so that will leave $200,000 unaccounted for. Say Yes is working on that. Hopefully, philanthropy or private donors will help. But beyond that, there really has to be a long-term plan for the sustainability of, of the family support specialists. To remind listeners of the importance of this issue, Say Yes is the program that gives scholarships to kids who graduate from Cleveland high schools and go on to college or continue their education in other ways. The scholarships are fully funded by private donors. But the backbone of Say Yes is this legion of family support specialists who help get kids to the finish line so they can actually take advantage of those scholarships. There's a specialist in every school, and they're basically social workers who connect kids and their families with the resources that they need to mitigate the impact of poverty on their lives so they can focus on their education. These interventions also keep kids from becoming entrenched in the system. We know that at least half of Cleveland kids have had some interaction with the Department of Children and Family Services so the program was supposed to be funded with a combination of funds from the Cleveland School District, the county and a federal funding stream and the federal funds have fallen short of expectations and the county has balked at picking up the slack there. So despite, you know, all the squandering they do of other taxpayer dollars, but hoping that, you know, Chris Runyne's priorities are are straight here and that we'll see a solution that will carry this program forward.
0: We'll be talking in a bit about something more positive the county council has done, but this really was a distressing set of decisions by them. You know, to look at Cleveland kids as not their kids, and to, to and they did. They squandered more than $100 million on such things as golf clubhouses in the MedMart last year, just blew it out the window, and they would not come up with this money here And it's social services. That's their charge. That is part of what county government does. And they failed miserably at it. And good for Justin Bibb for coming up with a solution because the county council looked like it was going to be intractable and simply not do what they should for these children. Mm -hmm. What's the most important thing you can do in this county right now? Right. It's help the children. They decided it was more important to have a golf clubhouse in Parma. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the bad news for anyone seeking to travel for spring break by flying out of Cleveland Hopkins International Airport? Lisa, this one just continues to boggle my mind, and I don't buy their excuse about why it's a problem now.
1: You are not going to find parking at any city-owned parking lots at Hopkins Airport because they are already full heading into spring break. Only the off-site brown lot has some spaces, Um, but this apparently has become a trend during holiday travel at Hopkins in recent years. And a reason given is that there are fewer connecting flights because United no longer has a hub at Hopkins. The airport does currently have 7,000 spaces at five different facilities. 2,000 of them are currently out of commission at Smart Parking Garage until late summer. And then they're going to open a temporary gray lot in late April with 1,000 more spaces just north of the terminal, but you're going to have to wait a month for that. They're expecting about 800,000 travelers for the spring break uh, from now through mid-April, and that's up from 750,000. Just last year,
0: yeah, I, th- they're claiming that this this need has arisen because the hub stopped. That used to be the people flying mm-hmm. through Hopkins were were using it as a hub, so they didn't park here, but. Don't forget, we had a second mammoth parking garage that the visionaries for the airport decided to tear down a few years back. We just don't have enough parking. How do you have an airport without enough parking? (laughs) There's no it's not like people have a lot of choices here. I, I was struck by the difference in the number of parking spots in Pittsburgh and Columbus compared to Cleveland.
3: Yeah, they
1: have at least twice as many as we do. Now and they we have do fewer know that,
3: flights, right? I mean
1: Right, right. You know, but they're they are, you know, tearing down the Sheraton Hotel at the airport. And that's gonna provide, I think, I don't remember, at least eight hundred, maybe more parking spaces when that's done. But that's another several months we have to wait. So if you're headed for, you know, Hopkins for spring break, you're probably gonna have to park at like an off site lot like Park and Fly or one of the ones that's not associated with the city and take a shuttle in or just have somebody drop you off
0: or fly out of Pittsburgh or fly (laughs) out of Columbus. And no, really, if if you're driving to the airport and you don't know whether you'll be able to park your car, that's crisis time. You know, if you go to use one of these other airports, at least, you know, with an hour and a half, two hours of driving, You'll you'll be able to catch your flight. It's inexcusable that they don't have enough parking. I can't. Yeah. It just continues to d- defile imagination. Laura, you've used I think those remote lots. Those I, also require shuttles, right?
3: They do require shuttles, and you can get covered parking if you want. You can probably get a car wash on the way out. I use them. It does add a little bit of stress to your trip, right? Because you're like, okay, I I have to park, and then I have to make sure I get the right shuttle, and. But you can book online and get a parking spot in advance so you know there will be parking waiting for you and you just plan to have that extra you know twenty minutes or a half hour to make sure you have enough time to get to your to get to the terminal. Um, I live close enough to the airport now at this point that some of my family's going on on spring break. I think we're just gonna uber because a lot of people who live around us they get their neighbors to drop them off, right? because there's been, more since COVID, just a little bit more concerned about Ubers and stuff like that. But when everybody's going on spring break at the same time and your neighbors are all like in Kiowa, that's really not going (laughs) to help.
0: You know, here's the other thing about this. They, They blame it on this, the hub issue. But I think we lost our hub in what, 2014? Yeah, it was a
3: long time ago. So
0: it's been nine years. And they said at the time, our solution for losing the hub is to get more flights for Clevelanders going to vacation destinations and elsewhere. So where was the foresight? Of that saying, okay, if we're going to have more people flying out of Cleveland, we don't have enough parking. We should be thinking about a parking garage or something. There was no planning. This is a failure.
3: Can we just say how expensive it is too? It's $22 a day for the garage, $20 a day, the blue and red lot, 17 for orange and 14 at the brown lot. And, you know, my sister recently moved back to Northeast Ohio from Columbus. And she asked me about airport parking. She's planning a trip. And I told her and she's like, she, I guess the Columbus airport has spots that are 5 or 7 dollars a day if you're willing to walk far enough and it's like well i mean this for economic development this just just seems bad
1: yeah, but, but there are off-site yes. non-related parking. There, I there mean, are. at Houston Intercontinental Airport, there's no on-site parking unless you want to pay a whole bunch of money. This, you almost always have to get on a shuttle from a parking lot to your I just, to your terminal. I
3: agree with Chris that it's short-sighted, and it could be a revenue generator for the city if they were thoughtful about it, right, if they had planned. I, I mean, maybe they're going to turn the old rental car facility into more parking. I don't know.
0: One of the reasons I'm salty about it, to use Layla's word, is that I once was trying to fly out of there and there was no parking. I was going to New York and I realized I'm going to miss my flight. So I just got on the highway and drove because I knew that I wouldn't make it the other way. It was the first, my first experience with a complete lack of parking. So... Not a good thing. I've flown out of Pittsburgh, I've flown out of Detroit. There's never a problem there. And and if Akron Canton never got decent flights, that's got the best parking and anywhere. We're it's getting
3: like, that flight to Ireland, right? I mean, we're hoping that people come from all around to fly out of Cleveland to Ireland. Like you need to have parking for those people.
0: Yeah. again
1: (laughs) we're talking about city-owned parking it's not like there's zero parking out there you just have to get on a shuttle oh my god but
0: it's inconvenient and time-consuming and And i don't know how many spots there
3: are could that fill up at some point i don't know i wouldn't want to risk it
0: all right you're listening to today in ohio We wondered whether this idea was all but dead in Wednesday's episode. But now, to quote from The Wizard of Oz, is the reckless proposal to raise speed limits on Ohio's two-lane roads not only merely dead, but really most sincerely dead? Laura?
3: Totally, 100% stone-cold dead. It is not in the Senate Transportation uh, Bill at this point for the budget. And that idea was to raise all of these speed limits outside a city or village from 55 to 60 miles per hour without doing any studies apparently. And uh, they've just removed that from the budget now at this point. They also took out allowing cities or townships to ask ODOT to raise the speed limit to 65 for state routes that have 60 currently, as long as an engineering study determines it would be safe. But, you know, when the governor comes out against it and basically says this is a bad idea and you have nothing to back it up at all, I guess you just decide, okay, maybe maybe we shouldn't have tried this one.
0: But we've had other terrible ideas slip through with, all, with almost no notice. I mean, this is the result of electing buffoons. You, you cannot just arbitrarily raise speed limits on highways. That is guaranteed to result in accidents and death. And this legislator just tossed it up there with no thought, no research, and said, well, I just wanted to get a conversation started. Fortunately, the conversation went very quickly and said, this is buffoonery, but it's dangerous to have legislators this thoughtless and this reckless proposing bills. And we're just talking now about the ramifications of the law that passed last fall Mm -hmm. with almost no notice prohibiting cities from doing anything to regulate landlord tenants situations. You know, that slipped through with almost no discussion. This could have, too. If, if this hadn't been alerted upon and red flags raised, this could have slipped through just like most of the stuff that gets through down there. Bad news. Good that it's dead. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Talking about accidents, we're still talking about the video walkthrough of the mayhem and wreckage in the Turnpike crash during the blizzard in December. But now we have a video of much of the massive pileup as it happened. It's an eye opener for anyone who wonders how these big pileups occur. Lisa, what does it show?
1: Yeah, those videos were something to see. These are new videos from that December 23rd 51-car pileup on the Ohio Turnpike that killed four and injured 73 people. These were released by the Ohio Highway Patrol in a public records request by the plane dealer and Cleveland.com. And these videos come from several 18-wheelers from the driver point of view. And there was wind-driven snow from Winter Storm Elliott that suddenly blinded drivers just before the pileup. The visibility was less than a quarter mile winds were whipping up to 40 miles an hour so apparently what happened is that several vehicles when they suddenly lost visibility they lost control of their vehicles and then they blocked the eastbound lanes but that set up a chain reaction near an overpass and there's actually one video that shows a motorist who's like walking to the side of the road moments before a semi crashes into the wrecked vehicle they were standing by but yeah you need to watch these videos and it was interesting because, and you can't tell how fast somebody is driving from a you know, from a video, but it looks like they were just motoring along and there's an overpass. So the 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 accident happened just beyond the overpass. And they're driving along and all of a sudden this overpass shows up and all this pile up of cars and more trucks piling into it. I mean, it's really something to see.
0: Well, right, because as they come under the underpass the blinding snow's not there and all of a sudden it's holy moly, there's a bunch of stopped trucks. Cars. cars. I I always thought these accidents would occur very quickly in a very quick chain reaction. But what this shows is one truck after another tootling along, do 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 bam, and then another one do 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 bam. I wonder how long from beginning to end this took. I bet it took minutes for this thing to, to go. And you know, people died, there were tons of injuries, the road was closed for a day. We should remember. The people were strongly urged not to be on the road today. Mm-hmm. the day. The blizzard was predicted. the blizzard came. and when you were driving at high speed on the turnpike, you were in serious danger. but man, the videos are terrifying.
1: Yeah, they're, they're on Cleveland.com. They're worth watching. And, you know, um, they the Highway Patrol reviewed all this video, plus their own body cam footage, and they showed that really nobody was at fault. It was just, you know, an act of God. The weather happened. So there nobody will be cited for this accident.
0: No, but I would argue anybody on the road on a day when you were advised strongly not to be was at fault. Credit to Molly Walsh, the reporter who requested these. That was a smart move because it does offer insight. Next they recommend you stay off the road, watch these videos before you decide to go on the road. It's today in Ohio. Why is the Cuyahoga County Council resisting new county executive Chris Ronane's creation of a position for a special senior advisor of transportation? Layla, Ronane has said voters told him they want more public transit options, and that's what his focus is. Council's not so much buying that.
2: That's right. Annie Pease is Chris Ronayne's new transportation advisor. He created that job in response, like you said, to the county residents who overwhelmingly complained that transportation and mobility really do need to be improved in the county. But county council kind of grilled Annie Pease this week on on why her job is necessary. They, they made the case that Her job seems to duplicate the work of other agencies that already handle transportation issues. And they pointed out that the county really isn't in a position to be that influential on any of that because they don't have jurisdiction over the transit system. There's the, you know, we have the Northeast Ohio Area Wide Coordinating Agency, the RTA, and county departments for public works, sustainability, and the Planning Commission. They're already doing a lot of the work that PISA's position is supposed to be responsible for. That's county council's argument. And Pease said, well, first of all, Noaca is a planning and funding agency. It doesn't have an implementation arm. And the county could help fill that role and coordinate with other mobility-focused agencies to make sure their efforts and projects align with Chris Renane's larger transportation agenda. That could mean zoning or incentivizing development in certain areas with transit access, or it could mean elevating and expanding ongoing projects. And she named a few of those. In fact, she said, you know, improving transit should be a very high priority for county government because it has very wide-reaching economic implications. A strong transit system makes the county more competitive. Some communities are launching programs that help get workers to where they need to be to take advantage of employment opportunities and to bridge that final mile of the journey that public transit often doesn't cover. And P said... The county can help with those efforts and expand them countywide. And there are also a number of other mobility initiatives that the county can support. The county can advocate to expand Amtrak services, expand senior transportation services, and, and to lobby the state and federal for better funding to, to better support RTA services. Uh, and the county can develop a strategy to unite all the transit partners under the single umbrella and work toward the same goals. So it was. Uh, I thought this was a great story because I got to the end of it and thought, I see it both ways. (laughs) So I was like, yeah, our reporter, Caitlin, did a good job of that.
0: (laughs) I kind of see it from the council's standpoint here. Look, I've been ranting about how the council is kind of unilaterally expanded its role into creating new codified legislation and fiefdoms and slush funds and all sorts of things we never envisioned in this charter. The county has a duty. A series of duties that that counties are responsible for. It's it's the social services. It's the collection of taxes, the things they do. And they haven't done it well of late. And I, I kind of see their point that this is covered by others. Chris Ronane gets to appoint people to the RTA board so he can influence RTA decisions that way. I believe right. he also appoints people to the NOACA board. And so that's the way it's envisioned that the county influences this kind of thing. And before you go absorbing new duties into an ever-expanding universe of, of glomming on to stuff that's not yours, shouldn't you get your job right first? I mean, the, <laughs> the jail is a disaster. The, the There's all sorts of issues the county faces right now, including with social workers and how they deal with children Fix that before you start taking on new duties, right?
2: Yeah, and I think there was concern among council members that this is really just trying to check the box on a list of campaign promises, and that it really is unnecessary. Um, it's also, it kind of occurred to me how I mean, how does how would Annie Pease sort of assert herself in this in this space? All of these agencies are, are in their own lane. Right. How do you walk in and suddenly say, "Well, I'm the transit czar now, and I'm here to coordinate all of you"? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just strikes me as as that's good. that's going to be really tough to break in as as that uh, I, authority figure.
0: I agree. I I think this is redundancy. We don't need it, and we should get the stuff that we are responsible for right first. Good story by Caitlin Durbin. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and we got to lighten it up, man. What are the birds that were most commonly seen in Ohio during the just-ended winter, Laura?
3: Your cardinal is going to be the number one, which I guess is pretty common in Ohio. Isn't that our state bird? So I guess that, it is. that makes sense. Cardinals, woodpeckers, finches, and juncos, which is not a, bil- a bird I'd ever heard of. But this is all according to Cornell Lab's Of sorry, Cornell Lab of Orth. Orth I can't say that ornithology. Thank you, (laughs) thank you, Lisa. Ornithology. It's their Project Feeder Watch, and this project was founded by the Long Point Bird Observatory in Ontario in 1976. Partnered with Cornell, and went all across the U.S. and Canada. Now boasts 20,000 participants who count birds throughout the season at their designated feeder area. So 90% of watchers saw a red cardinal, usually at least a couple of together, a couple together of them from November 26th through March 3rd. And 300 sites in Ohio reported the birds visiting their feeders uh, every two weeks. The biggest participation in observers was from December 10th through the 23rd.
1: Which I think is the Christmas bird count. Yeah. The oh, yeah. Bird exactly. exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I know the bird that I see all winter, it's only because I throw peanuts out for them, is I see blue jays all winter. Yeah. And, and they and are night, number I,
3: six on the list.
1: And juncos only show up in the winter. I've never seen them in any other season except winter. So
3: are you a bird aficionado? Do you have like the book oh, yeah. and you like to look, Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. You should have gotten well, this question then, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're really called
2: juncos? Why? What's that?
3: Yeah, That's J- a terrible N-C-O. name for a bird. Okay, yeah. Uh, no. The other ones at the top, the morning dove slipped to number 10 during the winter months. We've got a red-bellied woodpecker, the blue jay, tufted titmouse, which is just fun to say. House sparrow, white-breasted nuthatch. Those are the top 10. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting stuff. You're listening to Today in Ohio Guardians fans have been critical of how the team treats fans of late, but the team rolled out something that should be a fan pleaser this week. Lisa, what is it and how might it get people into the sold out opening day?
1: Yeah, this is the only way you're going to get in there. Uh, it's a $49 pass that includes all 12 April home games, including opening day. It is a standing room only ticket, and that means you can stand in areas such as the corner bar, the home run porch, Heritage Plaza, and then the left field and right field drink rails. Apparently, this is common in other baseball stadiums. I guess they want to draw in the fans as best they can, especially in the early games. It might be have to deal with inclement weather. And there's an auto renew for this. So, you know, they're offering this for the rest of the season. So if you want to pay 49 bucks a month for six months to get standing room only tickets to all home games, you can do that.
0: Yeah, th- this is a great idea to draw in fans that might not have the means to be regular attendees. And there are plenty of places there to, to do the standing room only. It's I, I thought this was a smart play. It, it's not like you said, it's not their original idea. Other other teams are way ahead of them on stuff like this. But, you know, we have a columnist, Bob Paulson, that wrote recently about how he thinks that the the Guardians have the worst fan relations of, of any team in Cleveland. That the, the Cavs and the Browns treat their season ticket holders much better and have better outreach. And, and maybe it got through because this is something that I think will be uh, taken advantage of. We'll have to see. All right. That does it for today. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to Today in Ohio. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week of news.